thank you very much for, for having me. Um, this is the first time I'm engaging with uh, OTJR, and I'm very excited to learn, learn more about the centre and use this opportunity in, in, in this regard. And thank you uh, to Peter for uh, agreeing to sort of uh, co-present with me and do a bit of a, of a double act. Um, I'm going to, to skip much of what uh, jurisdiction and history of the ECC, because I think uh, Peter has, has covered that quite nicely. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll launch straight into um, my, my main theme of, the, of, of, of my talk. Um, I'm looking at the way that forensic science can contribute to international criminal justice proceedings. And it, it occurred to me when looking at, at uh, Cambodia that there was no shortage of mass graves and therefore no shortage of potential, potential evidence. So that was really the, the idea behind uh, this sort of research that, that I've conducted. And uh, what I'm going to present today is to give you a little bit of an idea as to what forensic science can actually contribute in, in, the, in the courtroom. Uh, and secondly, to examine whether this is anything that could, could have been attractive uh, to uh, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. Because uh, normally the paradigm is you conduct forensic science either for investigative purposes so that you kind of collect the evidence and it's, it's then presented in court, or indeed for humanitarian purposes. But the humanitarian purposes then would mean identification of bodies, repatriation of bodies. So that's the main idea normally behind forensic science uh, in those contexts. And that's the part paradigm that forensic scientists work with. Well, of course, that's completely different here. And, and I'm going to explain that a little bit later on. So I'm also looking at whether forensic science could contribute uh, in, in a broader sense of transitional justice, not just in the legal justice uh, arena, but in a, in a, in a more broader um, post-conflict situation, basically taking into account the psychosocial aspects. So I can skip all of this, <laughs> you're, you're spared. If we're looking at physical evidence, um, or evidence in general, then obviously um, it needs to match up with all the other sort of investigative work that is being done at these uh, trials and in these tribunals. So we've got documentary evidence, you know, from the Nuremberg trials that that's what they predominantly relied on. Then we've got the eyewitness accounts, and finally we've got the physical evidence. And those normally then tend to be categorised into, okay, let's, let's get the background to the case, and from there we build up the crime base, um, and then uh, try and find the nexus between the actual crime scene and the, the accused. And if we look at, at, at Cambodia and the sort of five uh, accused, then we have now one verdict, and interestingly, uh, it, it was Duke, uh, or Kanguk, if I don't know how you pronounce it, I, I do apologise. And he was indicted for um, more crimes and, and crimes against humanity and the Geneva Convention, and interestingly, none of the forensic science has been used. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll look at why that, that is the case. Um, jurisprudence from the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia also tells us that the proof of death is actually not necessary. That's what came out of Tadic uh, in, in, in the trial term two. And that's a particularly interesting one. So you do not need to actually present a body in order to prove death. And that's probably something that's quite, quite important for uh, the extraordinary um, courts in Cambodia. So it very, very much depends on the prosecution strategy that is adopted as to whether you actually engage in, in, in trying to find physical evidence or not. And it, it's been done very successfully with that. If you look at Rwanda, the trials, despite the fact that there were quite, quite a number of mass rapes, you could argue, um, it, it was not necessary. So why did they, or why should you engage in forensic science excavations and the presentation of evidence? Well, it kind of contributes to the, to the narrative of what happened. It doesn't explain to you why things happened, but it at least tells you what happened uh, and kind of can, can contribute to that, that. 
So if we look at what forensic scientists do, and I've got a little picture here that kind of um, shows you what, what we're looking at. We're looking at the primary grave normally, um, and uh, this is very much mapped on the um, investigations that were conducted in, in Srebrenica. So that's what we're talking about, the secondary grave, when the primary grave has been dug up and uh, the remains have been trying to be sort of commingled and, and, and uh, well, somehow hidden further. And sometimes you even get tertiary graves uh, where this has been essentially done uh, again. So they, this is a sort of crime scene. And what the forensic scientists do is they go out there, um, they examine the material, they examine the case shells, collect the artifacts, they look at the bodies, it goes into the mortuary, the pathologists do their examination, and the anthropologists as well, depending on what sort of state the human remains are in. And then they produce reports. Those reports then are used in, in, in court and um, the experts can give evidence to, to that effect. And if you, again, if I may borrow the Srebrenica analogy, what they were trying to do with Srebrenica um, was specifically to corroborate victim uh, accounts, so to match that up. That was very important, for example, in Demovich, that was the case where was, there was um, significant evidence from mass graves that, that was used to corroborate his, his evidence. Um, you try and obviously get a count of, of the bodies that, that were used and disposed there. Um, you don't want to obviously get the cause and the time of the death to, to make sure that you've um, got that covered, term the sex, so male, female, it's very important when it comes to competence and uh, age as well. Um, and when you, if you're lucky, then you're trying to also identify um, the victims themselves. Um, and this here is the reason why I did actually do my study. The blue spots were presented mass grave sites that have been mapped by DCCAM. Um, that's the documentation centre in Cambodia. They've done extensive work on this. And the pink spots are the prison sites. So you can also see some systematicity. It's not, unfortunately, it's not fantastically sharp, but it should give you a bit of a flavour as to uh, why this was interesting to me. And another thing that made this very interesting from a forensic point of view is that 95% of these graves had been disturbed in one way or the other. So we had either Vietnamese going out there doing excavations, you've grave robbers, you've got families trying to find their, their you know, relatives, um, and you've got perpetrators as well going back to the crime scene looking for valuables. Um, so <clears throat> the documentation centre uh, between 1995 and 2007 identified 19,733 graves, and they were sort of clustered in uh, 388 burial pits, and that's what you can, you can see here. And what DCCAM then did is they, they tried to essentially try and educate uh, the Cambodian population about the value of any sort of forensic um, evidence from mass graves. And they tried to do that with an exhibition, uh, which if you go to Tor Museum, uh, at least until some years ago, it was still there. So you've got specific crania, and it, it explains essentially the trauma that was inflicted on, on them, you know, blunt or sharp. Um, so, and that's something that anthropologists actually looked at. One anthropologist and one pathologist from um, Canada uh, did that, that particular study. Um, there was some controversy around this um, exhibition because the then king um, didn't fully like the display of such remains in public and so it was kind of put away in, 
in a side room in Torslang, and also um, they, they took some pictures of it so that they could use it. Um, and the, the idea then was to look at the mass graves that they had identified, predominantly through social science and such, so they went out there and did, did interviews and, and, and looked at a pit and then sort of, okay, it looks like there could be X number of bodies. So there was nothing signed, well, it was social science was sort of trying to determine what the mass graves were. Um, and so they wanted to sort of corroborate this um, and uh, find specifically undisturbed graves so that they could really from a neutral, from a normal forensic paradigm work, work on, on these particular graves. So um, they, they did a site selection study and they actually identified out of 68, I think only five that were, were um, undisturbed, so quite a small number. And then the idea was that they would do excavations on these particular graves. This never happened. Um, because then the extraordinary chambers were were established and um, they were out of funding. So there were two two issues. They didn't want to do the work for the extraordinary chambers on the one hand, and uh, they didn't want they didn't didn't have enough funds to do it. In principle, you know, this is a civil law system that the extraordinary chambers is, is based upon. As long as evidence is sort of obtained lawfully, um, it, it should be able to be admitted. So you could say, well, why didn't they? use this particular research material to some extent in, in the courts. I think um, there's some, some problems with bias there that you could argue. I mean, firstly, Chongek was first exhumed by uh, Vietnamese, so you could use that for propaganda purposes. And secondly, um, it was a very sort of small selection of crania, so you've got bias and selection, you know. And, and so I think it, it probably wouldn't stand up in court. So I think the only way for the extraordinary chambers, if they wanted to sort of engage in that, would, would be to actually conduct their own excavation. <clears throat> and if we look at what forensic science actually can contribute, then we can uh, look at the crimes and the crime category. So this would be something that could, could have been uh, attractive to Cambodia. For example, if you have specific uh, religious or ethnic groups that were targeted uh, in trying to construct that a particular genocide had, for example, happened, given that autogenocide is, is not necessarily recognized, you would really have to target these sort of racial or ethnic groups. Um, then you could look at, at, at using forensic science because they would come up with the patterns of abuse, the course and the time of death, which is of course very important because we're having a very slim window of jurisdiction. And you could argue, well, some of these, these graves might well have been caused by carpet bombing. And um, that would help in, in that regard as well, because from the, from the specific trauma that was inflicted on, on the skeletal remains, you could probably discern whether it was shrapnel um, or whether it was indeed sort of a hole that went through the head. Um, so, you know, it could also contribute in, in, in that regard. Um, secondly, what you, what you try to do is um, try and find a link to the perpetrator. That's not, not very easy when you're having the sort of high-level um, accused who kind of sort of only gave the orders but never ever actually found killing anybody. Um, so if you, you need to try and see whether systematic patterns actually match up with orders that were given. And that's something that, that, that you can try and do. Um, and I just wanted to show an example, I'm coming back to this slide. When you look at curse stitch, you can see how this was very, very well done in terms of uh, prosecuting with forensic 
evidence because the forensic science because it very much uh, confirmed the actus reus of, of, of genocide. Um, there was a high level of systematicity behind it, and that's what convinced um, initially the, the, the trial chamber that uh, he also had intent to, to uh, commit genocide. It was clear that civilians were targeted uh, surrounding Srebrenica. It was clear that Bosnian Muslims were targeted because they found artifacts. Um, and the thing that was also very convincing uh, to the judges was the fact that there were secondary graves. So not only did they try and kill people, they also tried to really cause distress to, um, to the families and try to hide their crimes. Um, so that, and that has ramifications because if you, I mean this is what happens every year at Potoshari, you know, the families bury their, the human remains and, and they get different body parts to, year on year depending on um, you know, who's identified. So it's, it's um, when we talk about trauma, and I'm not a psychologist, but for many, from, for the families in, in, in Srebrenica, um, the, the trauma is, it, I don't like the word closure, but you can't actually even grieve without the body. So it's, for them it's very important that, that they have got something to bury and, and, and um, have a commemorative moment in, in that regard or a place to, to go back to. Um, we do know that obviously the appeal chamber um, didn't agree with the trial chamber in terms of the mens rea, but I think it, it, it proves how, how this can be used in terms of um, the crime category, which is genocide, but also sort of trying to match up the pattern with the systematicity with the link to the perpetrator. The thing that um, I thought was most persuasive in relation to Cambodia to actually engage in forensic um, evidence is, is witnesses um, and to actually try and corroborate the testimony. And the reason for that is that, you know, 30 years have passed and uh, Peter was alluding to the fact that a lot of Cambodians do arguably suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. I could only found, find a 2003 study on this particular issue and the, the sample size wasn't particularly huge, I think 680 or something like that. And I think they come up with, I'll have to check, 80% uh, or 75% um, were, were suffering from 81% uh, had experienced violence and 28.4 were definitely uh, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so, you know, clearly there is, there is something to that effect. And when it comes to witnesses, you, you obviously want the person to personally say that to speak the truth, uh, but also to have been there when it, when it happened. And you would all think that you could recall 100% the face of the, somebody who inflicted pain or violence on you. But studies have actually shown that that's not the case. The error rate is, is, is remarkably high. So forensic science could actually be very usefully used in, in this process of witness selection to make sure that actually you're having the right person saying the right thing. Because what also happens, and this is something that uh, forensic experts have experienced in East Timor, is that you, you, you start having a collective memory in that regard. So you take the information from your neighbor or, or your friend and, and it becomes part of your own story and you think you've experienced that as well. Um, and I'm not saying that that is, you know, probably that is a very good coping me mechanism. As I said, I'm not a psychologist. But I think um, that is where, to my mind, physical evidence would have been very interesting uh, in this particular regard. And the other thing is 
is the numbers. You know, if we want to have some sort of authoritative num uh, narrative, then let's get this number business straight. Because at the moment, you know, the numbers, uh, I think you said, said 1.6 million, I think it ranges from 740 to 3.314 million. Um, so uh, there's obviously quite a wide range, and you could not very forensic. Sorry, <laughs> not very forensic. No, no, I mean, this is. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you could even just just do some um, some selective sites and look at them, and then say, okay, the estimates from DCCAM are accurate, or you know, at least try and find out through through surveying more of the sites whether um, it is likely that they were Khmer Rouge. Crimes, or whether they were others. I mean, we know that you know there were lots of um, um, other atrocities being committed during during other periods of of um, of this time. Um, and so, again, forensic science, as long as we understand the taphonomy, which is the de decaying processes of, of of these human remains, then we could have uh, have a good idea as to what we could actually. Um, in terms of numbers, so I think that that, that could have that would have been very persuasive. Um, beyond the trials, as I said, there is two reasons why why, why forensic scientists uh, engage in, in this sort of uh, line of work, which isn't particularly pleasant and it's normally very smelly and <clears throat> quite dangerous as well. Um, I mean, you've got the landmines in, in, in Cambodia to contend with. In Yugoslavia, they were working at the point of a gun because they had to be protected. Um, so um, very often they've got a very humanitarian ethos behind the work that they do for very good reasons. Yes, they want to establish some sort of uh, accountability, but they also sort of want to raise awareness as to what, what, what happened or, and how, how forensic science can, can contribute. And this is in part what uh, DC Cam wanted to do with this educational sort of exhibition. And I think that's something that is completely lacking in, in Cambodia as far as I understand from my field work. That, Forensic science is not something that is engaged in, and that's um, partly because uh, religiously, as I understand it, uh, you don't want to mess with with, with bodies that were uh, or human remains that were killed in um, in ways that are probably extra legal, you know, outside the legal process. So therefore, they they you you would have bad souls fly, flying around, and it would be bad. For, for the people dealing with it. So there's, there's that sort of um, religious connotation around it, um, and I'm sure there's people in this room who understand this better than me as well. You could try and help identify victims. I think that the chance of doing that in Cambodia are fairly slow. Um, I think 30 years have passed, you would have to invest extensively in DNA. Yes, you might be lucky, that's not the right word, but you, you might be able to uh, identify a few, but I think in general, it's a difficult one. Um, creating an account that is immune to revisionism, I think there's always a question mark behind that because everybody will, um, if, if somebody wants to have a, a conspiracy theory or a different view of it, then, then I'm sure they'll find ways. But what struck me when I read Peter's paper is that they doubt the authenticity of, of these um, human remains. And that is something that came very much as a surprise to me because to me, you know, looking at these long bones in the stupas or the crania, that is very powerful and uh, it would never cross my mind that that could not be authentic. Um, so that's, that's obviously another <laughs> reason why you could actually prove um, they are human remains, they are probably Cambodians, you could probably tell from the physio physiognomy. Um, 
so I think in that regard it could contribute to it and in, in terms of the numbers as well. I also think it could render some dignity to the victims and their family and human right life in, in general. Let me explain. Um, there seems to be a little bit of a, of a gap between what the older generations know about the Khmer Rouge era and what the younger um, generations seem to believe. Um, they seem to think that these people that were sort of killed and maybe not buried properly or not cremated in this particular way are, are bad people and, and somehow deserve that treatment because they can't quite believe that um, there could be Khmer on Khmer violence. Um, so <clears throat> I think it's a, for, for us it's a bit difficult to, to comprehend. I mean we've got the internet, we, we, uh, most of the history books that we know on Cambodia were not written by Cambodians. I think there's only, there was one history book that came out in 2008-9, um, but there is this very little in way of um, uh, education within uh, Cambodia as I understand it. Uh, and so therefore, in, in that regard, you, you would actually find a dignity to, to a whole history and a whole I don't know how many millions of people because it was, they were probably innocent in, in all of this and I think that's quite, quite a powerful point to make. And the other thing I think is capacity building, uh, capacity building of the judiciary, uh, capacity building of, of forensic um, experts as well to engage in pathology, to engage in anthropology and make use of that. And um, you know that's something that some tribunals have thought was part of their objective. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether it, you know, the extraordinary chambers would go so far, but in a sense I think it is because it's international and so therefore recognise the, the fact that there was a lack of, of um, well, integral judiciary. So, you know, there's a great um, suspicion on behalf of the Cambodian people of, of the, the judiciary and is also believed to be quite corrupt. And so therefore, I think that, that would have been a good opportunity uh, to introduce this particular line of work, which is arguably useful. Um, so the question then for me is, OK, um, did the extraordinary chambers make a mistake in not engaging in this? Because as I said in the Duke verdict, they, they, didn't, they didn't look at it. They, could, they had the opportunity to look at it. But they had the opportunity to look at it because there was a discrepancy in the numbers that uh, were initially reported to have been held and detained at Tulsleng and the actual numbers uh, that were found at Chohek, there was a discrepancy of 6,000, I think. And uh, Deborah Comer, an American anthropologist, went out there to sort of investigate. It was a very easy solution to it. It transpired that um, they had buried the bodies initially around Tulsleng for some years and then started for hygiene reasons as well, to sort of bury them um, outside Phnom Penh. But that would have been an obvious one, and they didn't do it. It explicitly says that in, in the judgment. Um, so, but I think it's probably a pragmatic decision why they didn't. And I can, I can go with that, because you open a huge can of worms when you, when you start doing this line of work. Um, in spe specifically with regards to identification. And I think that's, that's the biggest problem. Um, there is also the discussion in, in Cambodia as to whether these um, human rights should be cremated after the extraordinary chambers cease to um, do their work. Um, and I think the um, former king favours this particular uh, act, but uh, as I understand it again, cremation is not so simple because normally the bodies then will belong to the family. 
but if you don't, haven't got the identification, then you can't actually return it to the family. So you're a bit in a vicious circle if you don't want to do the DNA analysis and you don't want to do the uh, examinations on, on human remains, then obviously that's something that couldn't be done. But I think what, what DC can try to do is to actually start to have a, a debate as to, okay, what is the function of these human remains? Is it educational? Is it political? Is it commemorative? Um, clearly it's not legal. The ECC is, ECCC is not engaging in a medical legal debate. Um, so, so therefore, you know, what is to happen with this? What is the use of this? Is it just a tourist attraction? Um, or or what, what, do we, what, what do we want to do with it? And I think in that regard, it would be quite powerful to have forensic science as an option to actually really discuss what the possibility is and, and, and essentially empower the Cambodians to make their own decisions as to what is to happen with, with these human remains. As much as I would like to see the forensic scientists to go there, and, and you, I think it's, it's obviously fascinating, and it, it is a completely new paradigm for forensic scientists because they would have to work on um, on long bones, on photographic evidence, that's, that's new territory. So exciting from that point of view, but ethically I think, no, you don't want to go in there and set up shop. Um, so therefore I think probably I, w I would say I understand why the extraordinary chambers haven't engaged in it and um, I, I see that that is a logical way to do it. However, I think that it's, it's not something that should, it's not something that goes away put it that way and I think that if it, any initiative were to come then it should probably come from within documentation centre or other civil society always embedded in the political discussions of course but I think that's probably the pragmatic way and, and um, the most suitable for the Cambodians to, to look at evidence from the killing field. Thank you. Great, thank you so much.